Counsel Podcast is a show dedicated to individuals and mental health professionals, providing support, information, and some candid conversations along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Seth. Another episode. Another episode. Another day. Another week. We're finishing up a month. Yes, we are. Ah. A month on domestic violence. And what a month it has been. I was going to say, that's a hell of a month right there. I would say that we've covered quite a bit of ground. Yeah, we have. On a tough subject. this, This has been a tough subject. In fact, even in a lot of our interviews that we've had, or discussions that we've had, I mean, a lot of it's been research that we've pulled from NCADV because this is a tough thing to talk about. Well, and there's so much to it that people know this stuff anecdotally, Mm -hmm. but when you're confronted with the numbers and the statistics and the data, it's a whole different ballgame. You you realize how widespread, you know, the problem actually is. Yeah. And we we tend to localize it, especially if it's it's something we've experienced personally, we localize that to our own experience. And forget that there's a whole bunch of people that are experiencing it differently, probably. When we look at this, the experiences are extremely varied and vast, that everyone's experience around this is kind of different. When we talked about trauma during the overview, two kids could be in the same household. Sure. And it be an abusive environment and both of both the children having very different experiences and maybe even different perspectives as to what really was going on. Right. Well, I know for my brother and I, we were in the same house and I don't think that I've ever sat down and had a conversation with him and asked him about how he experienced it. But I know that we have very different personalities. And because of that, we're going to, we're going to see it differently. We're going to handle it differently. We're going to respond differently. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we really have to remember, no matter the subject matter, especially as it pertains to mental health, is one of the qualifying characteristics in every one of of these subject matters is the fact that everybody has different personalities. And that's why mental health can be difficult, because it's not a Band-Aid. It's not a one-step solution for everybody. It has to be subjective. It has to be personal, because every one of us handles and sees things differently. And I know we say that all the time, but I think we have to continue to say that, because it's so very relevant to any discussion on mental health. Absolutely. And I think that a lot of this series involves a lot of repetition. Well, yeah. I mean, we're talking about trauma as the main thing. Mm -hmm. We're talking about different expressions or or ways in which trauma manifests. So yeah, we are going to say a lot of the same things. But that doesn't negate the importance of each one of these subject matters. It definitely does not negate it. But I just want to explain, there's a reason why right. <laughs> there is a specific reason as to why you hear us say the same things over and over right. and over and over again. It's because it's absolutely critical when we look at these issues absolutely. because everyone is different. Mm-hmm. I agree. There is intention behind what yes. I say, but let's jump on in. Let's just jump right on into a mental minute, my friend. Well, you get to go first. I went first last time. 
Huh. <laughs> Sorry, throwing you in. <laughs> I was not. Um, well, we didn't discuss it, but I know I went first last time. So I was not planning that. <laughs> I know you weren't. I could see it on your face. That's why I threw it at you. I was ready to. I like to keep you on the edge. You know, I like to keep you not knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I took some time off last weekend. I'd had a like a five, four and a half, five day weekend. Nice <laughs> of doing. Absolutely nothing. How wonderful for you. It was glorious. I I think that would be. I uh, recently found the show A Million Little Things. I saw you mention that. I don't know what that is, though. I have so many shows I should watch. It's not even funny. Well, I mean, I watched all three seasons um, since Friday. (laughs) Oh, wow. Well, you had all the time off. I had. I had (laughs) Friday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday off. So, yeah, I watched all of it and it was phenomenal. I think I cried during every single episode. And as a result, do you think things got picked up around the house? Absolutely not. What's the point of a vacation if you're cleaning house? Exactly. And I think my mom caught wind of that. So she actually came into town Tuesday and cleaned my condo. How how nice Which is embarrassing to say as a 31-year-old that your mother came. Send her over here. I don't mind. I won't be embarrassed. And cleaned your place. But, (laughs) you know, when I've been feeling down, I needed the time. She knew I wasn't going to get anything done. She knew that on Friday. So, anyhow. (laughs) There you are. Well, Donna wants to know exactly how messy you can be. Well. I mean, you are a man living by yourself, so. I am a man living by myself, and I have a tendency to kind of allow the trash to build up to where (laughs) I will even replace the trash. But that doesn't mean I take the trash down to the dumpster. Oh, that's no good. So it'll sit outside my my door in the breezeway for a day or oh, two. Oh, well, okay. I thought you meant it was sitting around your kitchen or no, something. No, well, that's... I think one day Yuck. I did have it sitting around the kitchen. Ew. But typically it's sitting in the breezeway. And you don't have dogs, obviously. So. No, but I do have a cat who yeah, but... does get into everything. Oh, okay. Well, she did I was going to say, in... dogs are probably a little worse about getting in the garbage than cats are, though. She did get into the trash. But the reason that my place is messy is because of her. So re- okay. it's really her fault. So we're blaming the cat. 100% we are. <laughs> why Why would I do any different? If I have, <laughs> if I have a viable excuse, I'm going to use it. So, good point. Good point. Anyhow, uh, break was good. I watched good. a million little things and did some reading, did some editing. Tell me about you. I know some, and I would like uh, to hear some. I'm just happy you're here because <laughs> <I'm> right. <laughs> I, as of last night, I was not for sure if we were going to yeah, be recording dicey. today. Well, I had I had two significant events take place this week. First and foremost, I got my first vaccine shot. I did that on Wednesday. And I know there's a lot of trepidation for people about doing so. And I I will admit I had some as well. I don't know what's going to happen or how I'm going to respond. But I went and had the shot. As always, I don't like somebody sticking a needle in my arm, but it is what it is. Yeah, it goes fast. And they make you wait for a little bit, you know, eight to 10 minutes. She told me I had to sit there. About a minute after I got the shot, I got a wave of dizziness Mm. for about five seconds, maybe. And then it was gone and I felt fine. Had no further problematic symptoms or anything. My arm didn't hurt, nothing. And so it was so easy that I forgot I had the shot. And so I went to the gym that night, as I normally do. And it was a shoulder night. 
Well, I always do a big warm-up routine because I'm older, so I'm making sure did to you, take care of my at joints. At this point, did you forget that you had had the shot? I had forgot I had the shot. I completely put it out of my mind. And so I warm up and I sit down and my coach has me doing these supersets at the beginning of every workout that are killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 reps. And in between each one of those, you have a second exercise. So it, it was 50 shoulder press. And then I would stop and do 15 lateral flies, then do 40. And that whole thing is, is one set. Mm-hmm. And I have to do that twice. I sat down and started doing that shoulder press and I got a burn in my shoulder. Like, Uh-oh. and I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, I didn't warm up enough. So I stopped. I warmed up some more, went back to it and it started burning again. I thought, well, damn, did I pull something? I, you know, I don't know what's going on. This hurts. And the longer I went, the I had to keep dropping the weight. I had to keep stopping in the middle of sets. I don't do things like that. Mm-hmm. And about three quarters of the way through, I went, Oh my God, you dumbass! You had a shot in your arm today. But I finished. I finished the workout. I just dropped every all the weights really low, and and I finished. By the time I got home, my whole shoulder was swollen. Mm-hmm. And so my daughter in law standing in the kitchen when I get home, I go, Hey, check out the difference in my shoulder. So she puts a hand on either side. And she's like, Oh my god, it was like massive. Well, <laughs> and hurt. I couldn't pick up my arm. It hurt so bad. And so I sat there eating, like babying my arm all night long. I held my arm, you know. <laughs> And uh, But the next day, completely no pain, nothing. And everybody was saying, oh, your arm's going to hurt two or three days. I'm like, no, you just go lift a bunch of weights. You get all of it done at once. <laughs> all the pain's gone all at once. So, uh, but yeah, so nothing now. It's it's completely fine. I get the second shot April 20th. Okay. So we'll see how that goes because I know some people have a hard time with the second one. But Yeah, I was going to say, because yeah. really, the what from what I hear, the first one's not a big deal. Yeah, You might get deal. a little dizzy. Some people the have, The second yeah. one is what's... Yeah. What's different? But I've I've also heard quite a few of the people that have had the second one go. No, I didn't have any problems. Really? So I think, again, yeah. Again, everybody's different. So you know, it's. But anyway, what you were alluding to was, of course, I'm living in Tennessee now, and I've lived in California for the last thirty some years, and we're not used to rain, so <laughs> because we got so very little of it in California mm-hmm. on any grand scale. I mean, every now and then you get a good rain, but. Here, it has rained at least one day a week, I think, since we've been here, at least one day a week. And so, of course, it's spring now, so the weather, you know, the the spring weather is coming in. So we've had quite a few rainy days and some thunderstorms. So yesterday was thunderstorms. And uh, I was at the gym last night, and it had rained off and on all day. And I I was driving home, and there's all these lightning strikes, like really fast lightning strikes. And I'm like in my car, like, wow, that's really cool. You know, I'm, I'm all enthralled with the lightning and everything. And I get home and I pull in the driveway and I go to walk in the house and my phone starts going crazy. And I pick it up and it says, tornado warning, take cover if you're in this area. And I'm like, oh shit, that's me. <laughs> I open the door and I walk in the house and my daughter-in-law and son and son are sitting there and they're both holding their phones. I said, yeah, I got it too. And so I said, well, I'm interested. Let's walk. I walked back outside and I'm standing there and uh, my phone rings. It's one of my friends. And he's like, hey, where are you? And I said, I'm standing on the front porch of my house. He goes, go in your house right now. And I said, well, I'm waiting to see what the weather's going to look like. He's like, no, 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 go in your house right now. He goes, is it raining yet? And I said, no. And all of a sudden just whoosh. And I'm like, oh, I yelled. I go, oh, shit. And I jumped back, you know, away from the edge. And he goes, it's raining now, huh? And I said, oh, my God, it is. It's raining, raining. And uh, my son walks out outside and we can see the wind pick up and we can see rotation starting. Uh And I'm like, holy shit. Get in the house, get in the house. Meanwhile, I have another friend 
who uh, lived in California, she just moved here. She's in, in Nashville. And she starts texting me right away. Are you okay? I'm watching the news. This is right over your area. I said, I, it's just gone crazy here. She's like, you need to find a place to get inside. The news is saying you should be in a basement or something. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like freaking out. I'm flashing back to childhood because I grew up with tornadoes. So we've got the dogs. We're in a little hallway in the middle of the house, you know, like hunker down, waiting to see if we're going to have a house here in a little bit. Um, and she keeps texting me all the updates and everything. But we had lightning strikes right outside the back. Uh, the, the whole house shook. The thunder was so it, hail everywhere. <laughs> I I'm was gonna, like, oh, my is this God. A, is this a first time experience? Well, since I was a kid. Yeah. I haven't. I mean, I grew up with tornadoes when I was a kid. So I haven't seen it in 30 some years. And I ha I froze. I'm like, I forget what you're supposed to do. <laughs> we don't have a basement. So what am I going to do? Right. Bathroom <laughs> so, yeah. or hallway. Yeah, we have a hallway that leads back to our laundry room and the and then the garage is there. So the living room's between us and the back of the house, the garage is between us and the front of the house. So it, it's kind of insulated there. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, but the dogs were terribly nervous. They're whining, they don't want to sit still and we're like all on our phones hoping, you know, I'm relying on my friend Emily like what's happening? Don't move. You know, here's an app, download it, it'll tell you what's happening. It was a uh, well, and then they expire the tornado warnings. So now they're telling us you have tornado watches until 1 a.m. I couldn't go to sleep. I, I was up to like 1230 because I'm like, well, God knows if we have a tornado in the middle of the night, I want to be awake for it. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, if it was daylight out, you could see all the stuff happening. The sky right. would turn green. You know, you had the you warnings. Had warning. When it's dark outside, you can't see what's happening. Well, that's true. And it's scary, but Emily's texting me. She's like, yeah, they're, they're reporting rotation in a lot of different places. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> there's going to be multiple tornadoes. <laughs> and there was. I mean, Georgia got quite a few. Alabama got quite a few. I heard there was like 23. I think CNN put yeah. out a report today that said that there were 23 tornadoes yeah. yesterday. I, I sent a message to I have a friend in Alabama. I said, hey, are you okay? I know this came from your direction. And he texted. He's like, yeah, I was going to text you and ask if you were okay because I saw it was over you now. And I said, yeah. He goes, we're good here, but he said there were five or six, and apparently the news is showing that like five people died in Alabama, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, from tornadoes. It was Georgia and Alabama. I don't know if that was combined or not, but anyway, it's gorgeous outside. It's sunny and very, very warm today, but tomorrow, all weekend, we have thunderstorms. So I'm right. like, oh boy. <laughs> Prepare yourself. Here we go. <laughs> Got I got to get used to this again. And then uh, somebody else told me that this is a cicada year here in mm -hmm. Tennessee, which I've not had before, ever. And uh, so one of my friends from California last night, I, you know, I put something on Facebook about tornadoes and she's like, cicadas and tornadoes, you need to come home. <laughs> she was, I can't believe you're there. Just come home. I'm like, well, this is home now. <laughs> right. Well, that's pretty funny. So, well, I didn't feel funny last night. I was like, holy shit, this is, <laughs> this is a little much for me right now. See, I'm so used to it because I live in Tornado Alley. So right, like, I know you I, do. You know. We deal with tornadoes all the time. And in fact, I've even gone tornado hunting here in St. Oh Louis God. before no. with friends. We get in the car and we just chase chase them down. No, 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 no. You no. just chase the rotation down. That's a lot of fun. And even when I was growing up, we would always go to the golf course because the golf course was high up on a hill. Yeah. So you could actually watch. See what's happening. The funnels yeah. come down, which was oh, really so cool. scary. I mean, when I've I was I was few. terrified of them when I was a kid because I lived in Indiana, Michigan. We had a lot of tornadoes, and I was I was actually terrified of them. There was a time when I was in high school and I was in the track program, and we were after school at practice, and we had a tornado, and they put us all in the locker room in the showers, and it pulled the roof right off the gym, over the top of us. There were cars, oh, wow. rolled trees down everywhere, 
And so it went right over us. And and I have not forgotten that. It, it scared me. Every time we had one, it, it totally scared you me. You know, that might be be classified as a traumatic event i'm positive it was a traumatic event i still remember it vividly just gonna throw that out there i do know this i'm not in california anymore so i don't have fires and mudslides and earthquakes now so now i have cicadas and tornadoes so <laughs> and i don't know if those are you know equal on the on the changing one for another it's it's all it's all good and i think it's all relative sure well i lived in florida for a long time too and i had hurricanes there so i mean anywhere you live there's Right. You just have to kind of get acclimated. And I just am not acclimated to this yet. So that's fair. We'll see. But anyway, give it time. (laughs) That's my week, or at least a portion of my week, anyway. So, (laughs) well, it sounds like it's been not dull. I I think that's fair to to say. Well, I had my birthday over the last weekend, too. And I had my oldest son came to visit me. So that was another nice event last week. I'm so happy that your kids did come to see you. Yeah. My daughter and the son-in-law are coming in May. So. It's exciting. Yes, I know. That's awesome. They're doing very nice things for me. So that's nice. I'm happy. Now that I'm old, you know. You're not old. (laughs) I do not want to hear that. I'm officially a senior citizen. What are you talking about? No, you're not yes, a senior citizen. I can live in a retirement community now. Or do you have ARP? I have gotten new uh, mail from AARP. So yes. have I. <laughs> you just project an older image. Is that what's going on? I don't know why, but I do get mail from them. Well, I, I started getting mail from them a while ago, but I know I'm actually eligible to live in a retirement community now. So I figure I've officially entered that zone of my life. Mm-hmm. Not I'm that pretty I'm sure that to. like actively being a participant in bodybuilding and going to bodybuilding competitions may kind of rule you out from the um, no. assisted living facilities. No, no, no. The only requirement is age there. So if I chose to live there, I could, but I don't want to. Oh, really? That's interesting. No. I think it's just an age thing. It's an age requirement. Okay. So, but yeah, I, I think I'll stick where I am and do what I normally do. So think, not worry about it. I think that's a good, I think that's a good plan. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Cassandra. She wished me happy birthday. Yes, she thank did. you. <laughs> so let's let's transition. Okay. Are we ready to transition? Let's transition. Well, let's explain a little bit about what we're going to do and some of your concerns with what we're going to do. Because <laughs> I have many, many concerns. I know you did. Okay. So <laughs> we are going to try something new here on Mental that we have never done before. Michelle and I. Uh, had an interview with a gentleman by the name of... It was Paul, right? Yes, but I say his last name wrong, so I was hoping that you were going to step in. Oh, Paul Sangera. I, okay. Sangera. And Sangera's then Sangera's also, uh, we I personally sat down um, with a former colleague of mine by the name of Tanya Winnegar. And in having these discussions, we really went in with no agenda. Uh, we went in allowing them to share their story because I believe that being able to openly and honestly talk about the things that have happened to us is not only helpful to others, but it's helpful for us personally. Right. So we did two of these interviews and we have taken clips from each interview and we're going to play those clips live today during this conversation and discuss them. If, after hearing these interviews, you're interested in hearing the full stories, they are going to be released to Patreons. Uh, to mm-hmm. Patreon only, we'll be releasing the full interviews. But we will show, we will share clips with you. 
and I have them set at certain minutes. And so we're going to play those and then we're going to discuss them. To get started, um, I want to open this up with a discussion from Tanya. She's going to introduce herself and tell a little bit about what it was like for her growing up. She's specifically going to hit on issues of power and control with Michelle and I have, have spoken about in regards to her father. I think I was probably eight or nine years old when, and, and that's my, it's my unconscious talking is, yeah, I think I was around eight or nine years old. The first time I recognized and realized that my father raped my mother repeatedly and that he beat her and that all of the verbal abuse, the emotional abuse and the psychological abuse that we endured was not just behind the scenes. Or I mean, it wasn't just in front, it was behind the scenes as well. You know, there were, you know, power and control issues. You know, he would only give her so much money for groceries and we could only afford so much. So economic abuse. Yes. Yeah, super. So oh we're talking gosh, a like, lot of yeah. power and control. So, I mean, it, this sounds very controlling mm-hmm. on multiple levels. And Yeah. And so he, he was just a very controlling person, you know, right. if he didn't have control, which he never had That's control, he would take it out on the nearest person that he possibly could. Mm. And, you know, he he adopted my older brother when my older brother was like um i don't know i think three or four and you know before i came along i mean good lord i can only imagine you know what my older brother went through and you know what my mom would go through and and the stories that she refuses to tell that i picked up along the way like oh okay that makes so much sense she can't wear turtlenecks at all Mm. You know, right, right now I'm wearing a turtleneck, a necklace, and I have um, a scarf on. Yeah. She would be choking in this, like physically unable to breathe and, you know, dying. And, and so it's like, wow, like you can see in her 40s and 50s when after she had already divorced this man that she still has those effects. And so serious PTSD. You know, oh, oh, my God. You know, and she had that before she married my father and before she married her first husband, like, you know, patterns repeating themselves Mm -hmm. until you learn the lesson. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, so I grew up in the eighties. I grew up in the eighties, right? Like it just was this, this was, this was how military families were, you know, you you meet your wife and you go drinking and yeah, totally the norm. And then when I finally left home, relationship teenager was in a relationship with uh, what who ended up to be my daughter's biological father. Oh my God, seriously. I know that women marry their fathers and I hated my father, like absolutely abhorred this man because of everything that he put our family through. So I started dating this guy in high school. I was 15 years old. I'm like, when I'm 25 and 30, looking at this going mentally, emotionally, physically abusive, controlling. He'd never had control over my finances because I never lived with him. But he had he had something to say over where I spent my lunch money and how much money I spent on my lunch. And um, he would always encourage me to eat 
And how much money did you spend on your lunch? Okay. Hmm. There was a lot in that. Yeah, quite a lot. It was quite, it was, it was two minutes and 40 seconds. Felt like a lot longer to me. <laughs> and there was a <laughs> lot of, a lot of information in there. So really, so that's going to be another thing because we're just sitting here watching this. It's going to seem really long when it's not. No, I'm just saying it felt longer to me because of what she was sharing. It, it, that's an intense feeling. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What do you think in hearing that? Um, I think she's right. I think that domestic abuse is is somewhat prevalent in the military. I also do think mm-hmm. that there is a tendency to cover up or hide that. Because the let's face reality here. When you're in the military, the objective is you're serving your country. Anything that keeps you from doing so is problematic. And so oftentimes those domestic situations get pushed away or not dealt with in the way that they should be dealt with. It's very common knowledge that anybody that's on the drill instructor field that their, their family life can be very problematic because they're used to being very aggressive throughout the day, very much in control, and that comes home with them. There's no way around that. So that does make sense to me after being in the military and seeing some things as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get the whole turtleneck thing. The where, That was – I was going to let you address the military because I know <laughs> that you have some experience there. Right. Um, but I specifically wanted to bring up the turtleneck. Yeah. When trauma happens, like it changes the way we may view things, even in regards to how we dress. Right. And I don't mean dressing promiscuously or things like that, but like certain types of clothing will make you feel like you're suffocating. Right. Well, I had the impression that she was talking about the fact that her mother had probably been well strangled at some point. That too. But I think it also comes after that to where she can't, she said she can't wear it anymore. Yeah, because I think it brings anything that feels constrictive, because I'm the same way, anything that feels restrictive around my throat, I cannot Mm do. I I just cannot do. So again, I found myself, (sighs) the anxiety crawling up my throat, you know, like, oh my God, thinking about that, because that's that's a touchy thing for me as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I think she's right. Again, she brings up being a child of the 80s. And of course, depending on how old you are, there are some different norms that were prevalent in society. So can we talk about that? Because I didn't jump on that when I was in, when I was talking with her, but she's like, it's the eighties. This was the norm. Was it the norm? Well, I think domestic violence was looked at differently then. Okay. I think we're much more apt now to have resources. We're much more apt to have people that would respond to that as opposed to maybe at that time, at, you know, without the advent of the internet at that time, you wouldn't have had so much information available to you. So you kind of felt secluded or isolated mm-hmm. and maybe didn't know that you could get help or didn't know where to get the help. So I do think that as time and technology play a role here, that possibly at that time, it was it was something more that you endured more so than you probably would today. Okay. That's what I took her saying that to mean. Mm-hmm. And that does make sense to me. No, it does make sense. Yeah. So... But Donna said she found herself holding her breath too. So I wasn't alone. That it was a uh, kind of moment to mm-hmm. listen to it. Mm-hmm. So and I and I've listened to it already and it still has that effect. So. <laughs> well, the next we're gonna listen to a story from a gentleman from Canada. Uh, the full interview is actually on Facebook Live. This is pretty serious. Yeah. It and is. this is gonna be pretty intense. And so that's why in hearing you guys talk about the one we just listened to and being intense, this one is going to be very intense. 
Well, yeah. And you know that I struggled with it a lot while we were having the conversation. When you said it, you got sick and hearing it, Michelle, tell us about that. Uh, it, I mean, again, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I don't like the words, tr- I don't like the word trigger, but no, really, either. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know another word to use because what we're meaning when we say that is, is something that we're hearing or seeing is bringing up very emotion, you know, very uh, strong emotion in us that that stems from our own trauma that we've experienced. And much of what he was saying, uh, I resonated with because I had seen so much of a lot of the same things. And of course, so I'm not necessarily only listening to his story. I'm listening to his story and I'm flashing back to my own. Mm-hmm. So it's ramping up that anxiety and that trauma is reemerging again. And I, and again, I think we have to preface listening to what he was talking about again with the seriousness of what he was talking about, because there was so much of it that was incredibly difficult and quite honestly, I mean, ugly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't think he would disagree with that statement. So I don't think he would either. Mm -mm. Um, We're going to process this afterwards. Okay. So I grew my my family, my mother and father were born in India, Punjab in detail. So they came as immigrants here to Canada. And just from the get go, my mom went through lots before she things even happened when I was born. As you know, in the past, uh, they did fake marriages and she was married to my dad's cousin to come over here. And then they did a divorce and then she was married to my dad to bring my dad over here. So it was just, yeah, it was a way to bring them through. Very different from what we're used to. Yeah, (laughs) hundred percent. The sad part was my dad's cousins held her, let's say, would tell her that if they wouldn't do, if she wouldn't do the things that they, they wanted her to do, that they would get her deported. Oh, wow. And that's pretty messed up. Really messed up. So when I grew up in the household, I remember my dad's a functional alcoholic. This man, I kid you not, I don't know why he can or how he does this, but he can drink alcohol to a point where like every night, but wake up the next morning and be 15 minutes early for work. It's like his, his crazy superpower or whatever it was, but it was intense. And he was pretty brutal without the alcohol with the abuse Mm. but when it came to drinking the alcohol it just went 10 times worse grew up in in an environment within the four walls of seeing my mom getting raped as a child and seeing her get beat as a child hearing the sounds hearing the screams hearing the terror and then all of a sudden Uh, He would even want me to get loved from my mom, really. I don't even know what to say. Well, I think one of the things that you have to recognize there, and I don't know if anybody else heard it or not, the emotion in his voice. Uh The fact that he's a grown man now, and that still elicits that strong of an emotion to talk about it, it was obviously incredibly traumatic. And, and... That, it hurts my heart. It really does. I mean, that's the first thing that comes up for me. No, this time through. The first time through was d- dealing with the information he was giving us. But this time, I really am listening to his voice mm-hmm. and still hearing the pain and the trauma there. So, mm-hmm. And I want to, Paul, if you're listening to this, I want to thank you so much 
uh, for yeah. coming on and sharing your story with us. I, I can only imagine um, what it must be like uh, to have gone through that. And right. in, in listening to this again, I really caught on, first of all, the very fact of like an arranged marriage and yeah. then it being a dangerous environment and all of that. Um, but then also, I really caught on to the alcoholic father. Yeah. It, it specifically focusing on the alcohol that seemed to be a pretty big piece that was driving a lot of the abuse that was happening at home sure. from what he shared. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think anytime there's any kind of an addiction, you're exacerbating the situation again, though, we've had the conversation that for some people, they can be that incredibly violent while they're stone cold sober. So, you know, it, it's almost to me a hope that some kind of substance is, is involved so that at least there's a reason for them being as awful as they're being rather than just being able to do that because, you know, and that sounds messed up to say it that way. But in all honesty, I mean, that's how I've always viewed it. At least at least there was the alcohol to blame or, you know, to say, well, this added to the situation. Right. But I will say this. The other thing that came up for me is is just how much we need to recognize that this is not just a here problem. This You're talking about somebody from a different country, a very different culture, and there's still this level of abuse. So this is not, this doesn't pertain to just here in the United States. This is a human problem. And, and so we have to think about it that way. And, and of course, we did touch on the fact different demographic groups and stuff that you know, and the effect of the trauma of domestic violence on them. So if, if you don't remember what we're talking about there, go back and listen. I think it was last week we actually talked about the demographics of it uh, with the statistics. Yes. So, yeah. Um, I do think that there's things that he can do to take steps forward, but... And he has. Most certainly he has. And right. that's part of what's so incredible about his story is that given everything that he's been through, he's now not only working on on working through his own issues but is helping others in the process right. and i i think that's one of the coolest things ever he actually reached out to me did he really he, he reached out to me after that and sent me a message and i i think in one of the episodes right after we had talked with him on live i made mention of how difficult that was for me and and how i was really struggling with the anxiety in my throat and everything and he reached out and he apologized and said i'm so sorry that that my story had that effect on you. It made me feel so, I'm like, you don't have to apologize to me. You were sharing your story, right? you know? And, uh, but he, he offered to help. And, and what was it that he does? What was it called? I am blanking right now. The treatment that he was talking about. He called it clearing. Clearing. He offered that to me and said, I'd be happy. Or if you don't, if you're not comfortable with me, I'll find somebody else to do it for you. But he just, he apologized several times. I'm like, you don't need to apologize, man. That's just your story. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm responsible for my own reactions. I, I, you know, I'll own those, but, and yeah, it was difficult, um, but that's certainly not his fault. No, you know, for sharing his not. story. So, and really, that falls to us. Absolutely, right? yeah, yeah. Well, kind of following along, I uh, along the, al- the alcohol trend. <laughs> let's let's tune back in and continue to hear Tanya's story. My grandfather, for all that he was a decent, kind man and a jerk, because he was a sheriff, he was a cop. Um, was an al- it was an, an abusive alcoholic, right? He was verbally and emotionally abusive and distant, and he was an alcoholic. So just one step further for my mother, her first husband, an abusive alcoholic. She didn't get the learnings and the lesson from that relationship and was rescued by the next person who was an abusive alcoholic. She left that relationship and 
then when she met my stepfather, he's an abusive alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So maybe now that she's in her mid to late sixties, maybe she can get the lessons and the learnings. And if she finds another partner in for a relationship, he's probably going to be an abusive alcoholic. The reason I'm including that clip in this story is one, it's following along the trail of looking at the impact of alcohol. However, we know it can happen without alcohol, uh, but specifically looking at that trend of continuing falling into relationships. Right. Like it's not even about returning, right? Mm-hmm. It's not even about being in an abusive relationship, escaping that relationship and then going back. This is you escaped you start dating again and you find yourself right back with the same type of person over and over and over again. That's right. the trend I'm speaking to, but I cut you off, Michelle. No, that's fine. I think two things stand out to me there. First and foremost, there are a lot of people that drink and are functional alcoholics or just plain out alcoholics that are not abusive. Absolutely. First and foremost. Absolutely. So just because somebody is is experiencing alcoholism or whatever, it doesn't mean they're going to be abusive. However- What stands out to me most in what she said there is what you said, the trend. And that comes back to, I don't, I don't see alcohol as the primary trend there. What I see as the primary trend is somebody who's so used to an abusive environment Mm -hmm. that they continue to find themselves in one because they don't know differently. And, and that stands out as a huge, huge thing because that's why you see the cyclical nature of domestic violence. Yes. And that's why. You will continue to see that going further into people's lives until somebody says, hold on, there's got to be a change made. And breaking that cycle is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's problematic because oftentimes the person being abused is so traumatized that their self-image is suffering. They do not believe that they deserve better than that. And they just want somebody. So they end up accepting as though they deserve somebody treating them that way. Mm-hmm. And the cycle is then perpetuated. Those are the things that stand out to me. So the alcohol is problematic, but I don't believe that that's the major thing in what she was saying. I think it's that finding themselves stuck in that cycle. Mm-hmm. No, I don't disagree with you. It just it's flowing off of the last one because alcohol right, is yeah. involved in that. That's really all I'm speaking to. Right. Uh, but I want to mention in talking about that trend and, and kind of breaking the cycle um, you mentioned it as kind of being, I feel as if I don't deserve enough, you know, as right. if I don't deserve more. But I think it's more than that. I think it's even in the interactions and what we expect from others, not just in how they treat sure. us, but even in just some of the communication pattern, personality patterns that may draw those types of people, or we may be attracted sure. to those types of people. Right. And I don't like that I just said types of people because I'm, I didn't mean to say people, but you know what I mean. Like yeah, I do know. being drawn, um, having someone drawn to you, an abuser drawn to you due to some type of behavior or you being drawn to the personality of a behavior. Perhaps there's something that they're doing that you find attractive and you find yourself continually back in that situation. Right. Well, again, I mean, you, you can go back and talk about the issue of control. A lot of times domestic violence stems from the issue of control on the part of the abuser. Uh, they are they are exerting their control over the other people in the home or the you know the other individual that's being abused. So 
that person is very used to being submissive to that type of control. So you're right. They may be, and this is in no way blaming the victim. Please don't misunderstand me. But as they move from relationship, relationship to relationship, that kind of personality is evident to people that are abusive by nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, again, we can look at another another example of that would be somebody who's very empathic. Often people who are very empathic or empathetic are actually victims of narcissists because there is that natural attraction. This is somebody I can control. This is somebody I can help. There's there's this symbiotic relationship happening. The same can be said in this situation. So that that person, while they're not doing anything wrong, it's simply the place that they find themselves living from that is attractive to somebody who wants that level of control. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like victim shaming. I hope nobody takes it that way. It's certainly not what I meant. Well, I don't hear it that way, but I do think that people are sensitive around this topic and yes, will jump sure. to that. And yeah. so I'm really happy that you're, that you're, yeah, that's not what that I'm you're saying. Throwing and clearing, <laughs> clarifying that <Yes>. because <laughs> um, I think that people do will jump to that conclusion because sure. this topic is so sensitive and, but I, I don't see you as doing that in this scenario. Well, that's not my intent. So I just wanted to make that clear. I, I can see that, that attraction issue though. Mm-hmm. And, and and quite honestly, that stuff is probably all happening very subconsciously. Yes. And that's N- neither the thing. party is sitting there going, oh, if I just act this way, I can attract this kind of person. That's not what's happening. Right. And I have sat down with it. Now, again, I just have to clarify. I am a clinical trainer. I don't I'm not in private practice. I'm not doing any type of therapeutic services as of right now. I've not worked with and around domestic violence since grad school. Okay. So but when I was doing work with domestic violence victims, I remember sitting with a woman who shared with me, Seth, why? What is it about me that continually finds herself back in the situation? Right. And like she she knew she knew that there was something about her that kept bringing her back into it, but couldn't identify it because a lot of times it is subconscious. Right. And it really takes sitting down and unpacking not just the situation, but even one's personality and what they're getting out of the situation. Right. Well, a lot of times it comes back to boundaries. I mean, and that's not something, you know, my therapist said this to me. She's like, it's not like one day you set no boundaries and the next day you decide to set all the boundaries. This is a learning curve, mm-hmm. you know, that you're going through in a process that you're you're adapting to. So you're going to start out putting those boundaries into place. And a lot of times that's what happens to to people that have been abused there for a long period of time, they're in that kind of abusive relationship. And then you'll see them start putting some things in place that protect themselves. And then you'll find that eventually they're out of that situation. And again, the cycle gets broken, but that's incredibly difficult to do. Oh yeah. No, in no way are we saying this is easy. No, because you get mentally beaten down. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's it. You're living from, again, that trauma lens and it's hard to think rationally that midbrain, as we've talked about before, is reacting before the cerebral brain can say, hold on, let's think about this for a second. Exactly. You know, so it's, it is difficult. Continuing along, because Tanya kind of brings this up about the trend, right? Paul and Michelle actually talk about this as well. And so I am going to play a short clip where they speak to that again. Often women that are severely abused have a tendency to not be able to 
to do the things that they should do to pull themselves out of that. They become it's it's a mental shift 100%, in that yeah. they're so mired down in it that somehow they start feeling as though they deserve it. Yeah. There is nothing better. I'm afraid. Yeah. What if there's not anything else out there? Maybe this is better than what I'll end up with. I have children. Yeah. I, I'm not financially capable. I mean, the list goes on and on and on oh. as to why women allow themselves to be subjected to this kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. I mean, when you have that belief and when, so if your family's in your past, like my mom's family in the past and my dad, if you got more and more people proving you that you're worthless, your belief system yeah. becomes yeah. I'm worthless. And your, their, your reticular activity system, this is the part of the brain where it's the GPS looks for that. And it's, it, that's what it wants. And that's what mm -hmm. it, you know, goes for. And it doesn't recognize really anything. So when she would go to the shelter and get all these changes and help and opportunity to grow, it was a different language to her. It was like a different world. Right. It didn't feel right. normal to her. Right. To her, normal normalcy was being in that kind of world. And so as humans, we like to get comfortable and be in that type of position and go revert backwards. And as a person who's dealt with a lot of fear and, you know, most of the, most, the average person thinks 60,000 thoughts, 80% of it negative. And if you've had a lot of trauma and a lot of fear in your past, going forward to do something different is scary. Yeah. It is scary. You're thinking, okay, I don't know what's going to be in the future. I'd rather just go deal with what's happening now. So she would always go back and then take me back there, which I would get angry and mad at her, felt like she didn't care and did, didn't give right. a crap about me, bringing me back to that monster. Oh. The primary thing that I hear is the emotion. You could tell his throat was tight and he was straining to get some of those words out. Yeah. Uh, and so I feel that very viscerally, mm -hmm. you know, to listen to somebody else be that emotional about something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, lots, lots going on there. He's right. It, it's a mindset. It's it's a, a habit pattern, if you will. So I interrupted you. Keep no, going. no, go right ahead. Go right ahead. Well, it's kind of like the stuff in the brain, like our, our uh, synapses, right? Once we've done something so many times, our, we're used to it. And, we're, and honestly, even if it's bad, even if it's hurtful, even if it's painful, if we've done it a hundred times before, it's comfortable. Right. There's almost a craving for the normal, yes. even if the normal's bad. Mm -hmm. um, because as he said, at least it's something we understand. Exactly. And, and it's not the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of what I already know. And so you, you find you find this this pattern of accepting and going back because that may be better than what I may anticipate coming from where I don't know. What we kind of talked about in Paul's story is about the difficulty in getting out of that situation, right? Kind of going back mm -hmm. to that same that same pattern. Right. Um, Tanya is now going to share with us. Um, this is a little bit of a longer story, so please bear with me with this. Um, but she's going to share about how her mom actually took that step and what happened next. Because because I was raised the way that I was, mm -hmm. that I had a great model for how I did not want to have 
in my life. I did not want a, an abusive, controlling asshole in my life. I did not want somebody controlling me in my life. I refused to let anybody lay a hand on me. You tried. I laid a hand on you first, right? Mm-hmm. Like you went to swing at me. I ducked and I hit back. So when my mother finally had had enough Mm -hmm. and she finally was able to release the grasp of the alcoholic abusive person in her life, she went through the process and the motions of divorcing him. She called her family and we trucked our happy little butts from the central Colorado, Colorado Springs, all the way out to central Missouri, Columbia, Missouri, right? M-I-Z. 12 and a half hours in a gremlin. I don't know if you know what a gremlin is, but it's it's today's modern smart car. Um, it's a Ford Focus from 1972. Oh, okay. Well, I... yeah. Okay. Tiny little cars, two doors with a hatchback. It seats three and a half if you're small. So we, we trucked all the way out to Missouri and I was 12 years old. And for the first couple of months, we lived with my aunt and uncle and their five, four four children in a two bedroom house with an attic and a basement. So there were 11 of us living in this dinky little house that was like 700 square feet. Those were probably the easiest and of my childhood, the happiest times because I, I was fed, I was clothed. I went to school, I came home, I did homework and I didn't have to worry about anything. When my aunt and uncle and their children moved out, I then became the the secondary parent of a 17-year-old, of a 9-year-old and half the time of a 2-year-old. And when when they moved out, my mother had she had a job. Um, she had just gotten her GED. And she worked at Burger King. And most of the times she worked anywhere from 1 p.m. to 1 a.m., which leaves a lot of time after work. So at 12 years old, I was taking the grocery shop grocery money, which was food stamps. And I was going down to the grocery store, buying the groceries. I was bringing them home. I was cooking dinner. I was making sure the dishes were done. I was yelling at my older brother because he wasn't pitching in and doing any of this stuff. And it was his job he was supposed to. Meanwhile, I'm also so babysitting a nine-year-old, making sure that he has his bath and he brushed his teeth and he did he do his homework and did he do his chores? And yeah, I know you're like, um, so, you're 12 years old. What the hell are you doing? So something we brought up in the last episode was the difficulty, right? In often escaping a domestic violence situation. And we talked a lot about economic abuse and it kind of leaving it, it really difficult for a person to actually escape and live on their own. It sounds like Mm -hmm. your mom escaped. She got out of the situation. In a form, yes. She got out Mm -hmm. of the situation. But in order to survive that situation, she had to work a job, in which case she couldn't actually be there for her children, which inevitably placed all of that responsibility onto the shoulders of a 12-year-old. Is that what I am hearing? Yes, that's exactly what you're hearing. I mean, I think that last statement kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. (laughs) That I wanted that in here. Because so much. (laughs) Even when, even when the courage is there and a person escapes, Mm -hmm. often 
they are unable to be successful or it all of the responsibility is placed onto someone else. Right. That probably should not have that responsibility. Right. Well, yeah, like as you're saying, there, there's two different things going on there. First and format, foremost, to the person escaping, in this case her mother, of course now has to live a very different lifestyle. While she's not being abused, she now is having to really hustle to make sure that her family's taken care of. She's having to work hours that she normally would not work. Oftentimes, you're talking about a situation in which they're not making much money mm-hmm. because there may not have been a lot of education or they weren't allowed to work, um, so not a lot of experience. There's a lot of limiting factors that go into what's happening, in this case, to the woman as she's leaving this abusive situation. The other part of this, however, is the effect that it's having on those kids because now they're no longer living in an abusive situation, but they've already had to grow up very quickly. Mm-hmm. And they've already seen and heard things that they probably should never have heard at any age, let alone as a child. But now they're having to perform very adult roles within the family in order to sustain everybody's life. And again, that in and of itself can be kind of traumatic and can actually cause, especially as a child is moving, 12 years old, you're talking about a preteen. You're talking about a kid that should be struggling through junior high. Not, right. you know, cooking dinner and taking care of a nine-year-old. Raising a family. Like, right, exactly. Raising a family. I mean, yeah, that's so, all of the responsibilities. I mean, right. uh, the, what the home duties. Right. For a 12-year-old. So, yeah. And staying on top of school besides that as a child. Exactly. You know, there you're you're basically working as an adult at that point, mm-hmm. you know. Well, she and, actually started working like at age 14. Yeah. I did too, actually. Story. 14. <laughs> I think she was 14 yeah. and had a special slip from this yep. from a doctor of the school or something, and she was working. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, uh, she I didn't like even know it was possible. Age. Yeah, I think she's about my age. And and uh, I had to have the same thing. I had to have a note from school that uh, permission, special permission to work. Um, again, you're talking about a time also where they weren't very interested in what was happening in the home. Hmm. So there probably wasn't even a lot of input from the school or the governing authorities that are granting that permission to say, well, why do you need to be working? What, you know, what is happening in your household? It, it was just, you know, something that they had to do. It was a process. So again, she's, she's fulfilling this role in the home. She's taking care of children. She's acting as an adult, but she's maintaining school. She's also had to get a job. There's a whole level of things going on there that can burn you out. And and that's ended up being what happened to me because I, I got to a point where I was like, I can't do any of this anymore. And, and of course my answer was to go into the military and let the military take care of me because I didn't have to, I just did what I was told. They fed me and mm-hmm. they clothed me. I didn't have to worry about it. So you're talking about growing up very, very, very quick. And hearing her story, like the full story, she ended up getting a job because her mom couldn't, buy her the things that she wanted right Right. like a nice pair of jeans or that really cool shirt in order to fit in and and look acceptable at school and what would end up happening is she would get her paycheck and guess where most of it would go of course right it would not go needs it would not go to the clothing it would not go to the things for her it would not go into her bank account she might get 20, I think she said she got a little like 20% of the first right. paycheck and she got one pair of jeans. And then after that, pretty much it always just went to pay for the, the basic needs at home. Right. Which I don't even know is that's legal because isn't that like Well, it child? is. I mean, I mean, the kid's being paid by a, an employer to do a service. Right. What what happens to the money after that is, is... It's up to the legal guardian. Yeah. Yeah, no, it just doesn't. It just seems. Well, it is wrong. wrong. I mean, it is wrong, but we're talking about, you know, 
just being born out of necessity. Yes. Right. Oftentimes, maybe the mom is, you know, or the adult in the family is not earning enough money to help the family. So the kids have to step in. It, it bring, you know what? Have you ever watched the show Shameless? Uh, yes. Okay. I've not gotten, I've never gotten all the way through that series, but the, the first few seasons of it, it is so upsetting to me. I found myself like screaming at the television, like at how awful the parents were and how, but in being so amazed at how these kids hustled, like mm-hmm. all of every age, they hustled and they maintained and they took care of an entire household like adults, mm-hmm. you know? And so that's what ends up happening. As I said, these kids end up growing up very quickly and taking on a lot of responsibility that they shouldn't have to at their own, at the age they are. So No, completely. In following up with Tanya's story about how she had to then, you know, become an adult very quickly, I now want to shift this conversation back to Paul, where he talks about his inability to actually protect his yeah. mother. So you so we're we're kind of looking, we're gonna look at we're gonna look at this on both ends. So as a child with what I seen and my dad do to my mom physically, violently, sexually, and the things that he did to me, it looked like where I was in that house and I would try to hide every moment I could if he came. Mm. I mean, like when my mom and I were at home, we were we were good. We would enjoy each other's company. It was heaven. But all of a sudden we hear the garage door open. It was like the demon came home. Mm. It's like all yep. of a sudden our heart would sink and we just get this, this gulp in our throat. We would look at each other with this terror. And it's just like, it went, it goes from like happiness down to just serious. And it's just scary. It's dark, like light to dark. And there were times where I would hide in cupboards. I would hide anywhere I could just so I had to avoid him and I didn't want to see him just because he would come home, say something bad to me, say something of what I'm not doing, how how bad of a person I am, how bad of a kid I am, anything just to take his feelings and put them on me to hurt me or say something mean to my mother. It, and, you know, and it was hard because I wanted to protect my mom. Right. But although as a kid, I couldn't protect my mom either. And I felt guilty for that. There were times where he would drag my mom out in, in the middle of the night. I'm not even kidding. In the middle of the night, he would drag her by the hair into the living room, be her and have us sit there and watch. And mm. he would say, he would say, tell us, Paul, tell me whose fault is it that I'm beating her? He was like, they always he's do. like, whose fault is this? And then we, so if we, if yeah, it wasn't easy. And when he, when, if we didn't say mom, he would go harder on her or, and on our, us. So we were sitting there going, mom, you know, and we couldn't even cry because if we cried, he would beat us. There were times where like, my dad's bosses would give me presents. And obviously my dad wanted to look good in front of the community and everyone. But then at home, he'd be like, you know what, for you to get that present, you're going to deserve something for it. And so I would be sitting there with a present going, you know, and going in, in, in the future affecting me to the point where my girlfriends would give me presents. And it's just, I couldn't, it was hard to enjoy. It was hard to receive and feel comfortable and be happy. Right. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. And Christmas was the worst Christmas were the worst because he would have days off more. You would drink more. 
And during those times, he would uh, harass me more, just everything amplified even more to point where my Christmases, I, did, I couldn't enjoy. It's just there was a lot of depression during those times in my years. And when I would be with my girlfriends, the girls that I dated, they would get upset and they're like, you're ruining Christmas. Why are you being such a downer? Why are you being so depressed? Why are you being, you know, they wouldn't understand that how much deep this can affect you and traumatize one person. Yeah. I, when he shared that he felt guilty about not being able to protect his mother Mm -hmm. as a child, my heart broke. Well, yeah. And I, and I think that that is pretty prevalent, especially among boys, young boys, mm-hmm. when they're, when their mother's being abused, there's this idea that somehow they're supposed to be the protector, you know, instead of the fact that they're just a child, you know? And, and so they do take that very hard. They feel that pretty deeply. I think, I mean, I'm sure there are girls that feel that way as well, but I think that that's pretty stereotypically true of boys. And, you know, there, there's this need to protect your mother. I think as a child period, you know, you're, that's your mother, you know, I mean. And then what that, what that message speaks then to the child, if they're not able to. Yeah. I let my mom down. It's my Mm -hmm. fault. Mm -hmm. Um, She got hurt because of me. And, and of course, and he specifically said that now that's, that's an added element to this level of abuse. The fact that he was forced to basically say it was his mother's fault that she was being beaten. Yeah. He forced them to. Yeah. And again, and I think if I remember correctly in that, in that interview, didn't he say that his brother actually went on to, or am I remembering something else? Because I've had so many conversations. His brother went on to. To. To kind of be more, maybe I'm remembering somebody else. I apologize if I am. But I, I had a remember. conversation not too long ago in which that was kind of the case as well. And the brother actually was, actually became abusive later in life mm. because it, 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 he took that message to heart. Yeah. It's her fault. It's her fault. It's her fault. And and so, uh, again, I apologize if that's, if I'm remembering incorrectly. I've talked to quite a few people lately about some domestic violence stuff. And so I've got my stories kind of mixed up. But I think that that's something to really talk about here because the damage, the guilt and the damage that that does to a child, that they're having to admit that, uh, okay, yes, she deserves this. It's not just admitting that that's damaging. It's having to say that because now you have actually become complicit almost in your mind to her abuse. Mm-hmm. It's because I've said this. Right. Which is so that's additional deeply damaging. Blame. Yeah. Deep uh, additional blame. And then again, the, the self almost, I would say eating up of shame and oh, like, sure. like it just, yeah. it just where it becomes completely overwhelming Yeah, to where they feel completely trapped and they it's all their fault. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing here that we have to think about, too, as it pertains to the cyclical nature of domestic violence, you're talking about children that have been conditioned towards violence. But now also because of situations like that, there's an anger that's building within them that they don't know what to do with. And it's going to come out at some point, And most often it comes out inappropriately. Right. And so, again, cyclically speaking, you're talking about another situation you're setting up for some more violence mm-hmm. as opposed to, hey, let's get some help for this child. So it's it's problematic on a couple different levels. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we're saying this so calmly. I mean, it strikes me as I'm sitting here saying that you're saying that so calmly and it's such a deeply damaging thing, you know, that, that there should be no calm conversation about this. This is, it's upsetting. It is. And Frank just mentioned something I want to point out that he mentioned in a, and I don't know if it was in this last clip or a clip before, but stepping on eggshells until the explosion, he mentioned that, um, about eggshells. Yeah. That there's this constant, Right. It, that horrible thing of like constantly not knowing when it's going to result in violence, but right. then when the violence does happen, it's somehow your fault. Yeah, yeah. It's ironic. Uh, eggshells. My my therapist used that same that same verbiage. Really. When, when we talked about some of my childhood, I she sat there and she's like, I, I really don't know what to say except, my God, you lived growing up walking on eggshells. And I said, Yeah. So I think that that's a very common description of kids that are growing up in domestic violence and, and uh, well, just anybody in domestic violence, because I know many women that have been victims of domestic violence in their marital relationships have said the same thing. Like they're, they're constantly trying to just be so very careful with everything that they do so that they don't antagonize or they don't trigger this violent response. Which can we just take a second to, to speak to what that does to one's own sense of self-worth for sure and self-value yes and confidence because i have not experienced an abusive situation growing up however i can tell you i was one of those people that i thought everything through Mm -hmm. right it's like okay if i say this then this person's going to say this right now put yourself into an abusive situation and play that game yep yeah because at that point, there's real consequences to this to to the point where they have to watch everything that they say, not yes. just what they say, what they do, not making Absolutely. loud noises, not knocking things over, whatever they have to do to not cause an angry outburst right. that would result in some type of abuse later on. Well, and one of the things that stereotypically brought out, especially if you're watching movies or TV, when you're talking about domestic violence, I know other people have seen this as well. The idea that everything in the house has to be a certain way as well. It's not just how you're acting or what you're saying or doing. It's that the house has to be a certain way or it's problematic. Right back down to control. Absolutely. It's a control issue. Well, we know that at the base, issue, at the base, this is a control issue. And as somebody pointed out in the comments earlier, we're, we're also talking about people that are domestic, that are violent that way, probably have come from a history of trauma themselves. Mm-hmm. And so they are perpetuating this cycle. So you're talking about this ongoing thing that's happening and trying to control your environment, you know? And, and so maybe, so the people that are the victim of a, domestic abuse are trying to control everything to keep it from happening. Those that are actually abusive are reaching out for control of the entire situation and are reacting when they can't control something mm-hmm. or it's not done the way they want it done. So it's, it, yeah, there's, there's trauma going on all over the whole situation. So as we talked about this feeling of guilt and feeling trapped in that situation, we're now going to, we're going to go back to Tanya for a second. And you know, and Tanya grew up in this environment, right? So it's not like she was dating someone who was, uh, right. she was, she was growing up um, in this. However, in doing so, she found safety with someone who was less than trustworthy. Right. And let's listen to that. Here's the thing with domestic violence 
And here's the thing with relationship violence that a lot of people don't realize is that violence isn't always violent. Right. I said, no, I said, no, he's one of my best friends. I spend the night at my friend's houses. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't care that I'm 18 and I'm, you know, still, well, at that point I had just graduated high school, you know, and I'm working and, you know, trying to have a life, you know, that doesn't involve, you know, mental illness and poverty. Only I was mentally ill and in poverty. And I'm over at my best friend's house because he's, he's a safe haven from what my home life was. Right. And that was the night I got pregnant. I said, no, I said, no, I can't tell you how many times I said, no, he raped me at 18 at 18. That's heavy. Yeah. And I lived through it at first. So it's, it's heavy and, and it's not. Okay. Okay. It was, I was raped. I was, I said, no, I can't tell you how many times. And, and he did anyway. And he is pissed to me to this day for calling him out on that when I was finally ready and able to deal with it when my daughter was maybe 10 or 12. So when I found out I was pregnant, I was very upset, super pissed off because at 18, I finally knew that I did not want to be a parent. I did. I was not capable of mothering children. I wasn't going to do it. I feel like that's fair. And at that point, at that time, when, when I told my mother and a good friend of mine's mother, because we were all really good friends, the A word, we we could talk about one A word, but we would not talk about the other A word or else I would be the K word. Mm. And so I'm like, well, then I will figure out if I'm going to adopt this child out or if I'm going to go ahead and, and raise her. Well, at that point it was it. And um, one of the messages that I received at that time. And so here's where, here's where I want to cry. And, and it's not because it happened, it's because it happened, right? And this happens to so many women. You did the crime, you do the time. Mm. Yeah, out of the frying pan into the fire. To think that you have someone that you can trust. Right. To reach out to someone that you think that you can trust. To go to someone that you can trust and then for that to happen. Right. Right. Is not just betrayal. It's rape. Well, it Um, was. Hands down, it was. Obviously, consent was not given. She mentioned that multiple times. Yeah. She definitely did. Yeah. She was also in a vulnerable position emotionally, I'm sure, mm-hmm. to want to be there with her friend in order to escape what she was facing, to find herself in an, arguably a more a more delicate situation or a more problematic situation is probably a better way of saying it. 
her story is pretty impactful. Yeah. I, well, both of them were. I mean, in their own ways. I mean, both of them have quite a bit of stuff in them that are is difficult. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's true of any story of domestic violence on any level. You're going to connect emotionally, especially if you've experienced something along the same lines. You're going to connect emotionally with that with that feeling, and it makes it difficult to discuss or to hear. So hence the triggers. <laughs> Yeah. And, and again, that's an added element too, because now not only she had, she come to the conclusion she wasn't going to have children of her own, but now she's having to from a rape. And, and to me, that is, it takes a special person to be able to raise a child as a product of rape. And Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying I'm amazed by people that can do that because how absolutely emotional that has to be all the time, Mm -hmm. not only for them, but for the child as well. Because at some point they're beginning to become aware of that that situation. So, I don't know. Very upsetting. I think it's time to wrap this up. And after hearing that story from Tanya, I want to close out this interview with her last words um, during our conversation. So let me bring that up. What's a piece of advice that you might offer them if they think that they may be experiencing trauma or uh, a domestic violence situation? So one of the things that the first thing I would say is if you think that there might be trauma or that there could be domestic violence, I would, I would invite you to really think hard on the word could, because if you think there could be, it actually is, Mm. you know, there, if you think there might be trauma, there's trauma. If you think it could be a domestic violence situation, it is a domestic violence situation. Violence does not always have to be physical. In fact, most of the time it's not physical. If you think that that's where you might be, Missouri Coalition Against Domestic Violence, uh, you can look up domestic violence in Missouri and go to any of the websites. And if you are worried that somebody is tracking your browser history, you click the special button and it erases it from your browser history. Nobody even knows that you went to look for it. Please know that whatever they say is wrong. If they say you're not worth it, they are wrong. Perception is projection. Yes. Okay. Yes. Everybody, everybody is our mirror. So when somebody says you're wrong, what they're really saying is I'm wrong. Please. So please, if, please. if you have questions, please reach out. Please, 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 yes. please, please yes, reach yes, out yes, to yes, somebody. Yes. Because it all starts with one phone call and a conversation. And we can have these conversations for a very long time. Okay. As long as you want them, mm-hmm. nobody, if anybody is telling you to get out, get out, get out, you can't sometimes my mother could not get out. She couldn't. And when she did, she did. So please reach out. I'm never going to ask you to leave. I'm going to ask you, how can I support you while you stay? Mm. Okay. How can I support you while you're going through trauma? Call somebody. What do we think? I, I I struggle with that a little bit, and I've, I I've said that before. I, I, I get what she's saying, and and I get what she's saying because you have to be the support for that person until they make the decision. What I think is that if they've made the decision to go and they feel that their life is imminently in danger, they should go. 
And I would do anything in my power to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, I, again, I vacillate because I, I go right back to a situation where, you know, that, that should have been what happened and it didn't. And there was problem, it was problematic as opposed to p- planning it all out and, you know, trying to do all the right thing. And, but I, I do see what she's saying and I do agree with it on that level. So, yeah. Yeah. And I do agree with her that if you are questioning whether something is or could be domestic violence, more often than not, you're you're going to be correct. It is. Yeah. And if it's making you uncomfortable, if it's making you feel traumatized, then it just is. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And if you're ready to reach out for help, or if you're ready just to talk, well, I guess talking to someone is reaching out for help. Sure. So I'm not suggesting that you need, that you're at a place to get out of the situation. Right. I'm not suggesting that you need to get out of the situation today. What I'm saying is if you answered that question of, have I experienced domestic violence or am I in a domestic violence situation or have I experienced trauma? If the answer you think is yes, talking to someone may be helpful. Right. And therefore I do want to let you know um, Tanya did talk about the Missouri Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, as Michelle and I have mentioned many times throughout this month, um, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence has a hotline, and their phone number is 1-800-799-7233. They are available 24-7, 365. You can call them anytime, day or night. It is confidential, and they're there to provide support. It's been a rough month. <laughs> yes, it has. Yes, it has. <laughs> it's been a very emotional subject matter. So, Well, I want to personally thank you, Michelle, for bearing with me as we've gone through this because I know that this topic has been difficult. Yeah. And we're going to come across topics that are difficult Absolutely. for both of us. And so I just want to personally thank you for, for bearing with me as we go through this. If you're listening to the show um, and you find that this has been a helpful episode, please leave us a review on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us. Absolutely. The Both of the interviews that were, were highlighted in today's episode are being edited and mastered um, independently. I have not done it yet, though. <laughs> um, they are being mastered and edited independently, and that will be placed on our Patreon. So if you would like to hear those episodes... Um, you can become a member of our Patreon, but I honestly even feel bad re- like representing that on this topic because it's no. like, give me your money so that you can listen <laughs> to things about domestic <laughs> violence. But we are a podcast and we do put a lot of effort into absolutely. this. And so absolutely. we want a Patreon that, that supports us and that we can help provide education and support around as well. Um, however, if you don't want to engage in our Patreon, that's perfectly fine. We do have a free Facebook group, a free Facebook page, as well as a free Marco Polo group. Please feel free to check those out. And can you mention the hotline before we wrap this up? Yeah, but I don't remember the number. You know I'm horrible at this. (laughs) 314-690-5005? Yes. (laughs) I know the last four. (laughs) Seriously, is this 5005? I don't know why I have such a mental block. I remember, I remember hundreds and hundreds of numbers and passwords and everything else, but that number eludes me for some reason. Perhaps you need. Perhaps that's a sign that you need to text the hotline, Michelle. We'll we'll have a chit chat. There we go. 
<laughs> what, what is our hotline? What is it about? It's a place where you can call in and offer suggestions, leave comments, share stories, whatever you need to do. Please keep in mind, and Seth and I have mentioned this before, if you are involved in the Facebook group, the Marco Polo group, or texting or calling in, we are not therapists for you. <laughs> uh, it's not ethical for us to be that for you. We are willing to listen. We are willing to offer broad and general advice, but nothing specific to your, cir to your circumstances. But we are here. That is available to you. The community within the Facebook group is, is actually very good as far as a sounding board and getting other opinions and sharing your heart because sometimes that's what we find helpful is getting out what's bothering us. Once we've let it out and other people are aware of it, it actually does take a, a, a level of that burden off of us. Mm -hmm. So absolutely join us in those, in those different avenues for your own good. Until next week. Until next week. <laughs>